Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game related topics. My name is Bob. And I'm Natasha. In today's episode we are going to be reviewing Maracaibo, Merchants of Magic, Mariposas, and Wingspan. And then our discussion topic this week is going to be Top 10 Welcoming Games. Alright, so let's go ahead and get into it. Let's talk about Maracaibo. It is a economic exploration style game designed by Alexander Fitzter, published by Capstone Games. In this game, players take on the role of seafarers and adventurers who are trying to increase their standing with France, England, and Spain, while also improving their networks and obtain fortune and glory. Players are going to be doing this by traveling around the board in their ships, stopping at cities and villages and performing various actions there. The game is played over the course of four rounds. Each round, players will take turns moving their ships until one of the players have traveled all the way around, triggering the end of the round. On a turn, you must move your ship forward one to seven spaces. After you move to a new space, you perform a main action there and any free actions you want. There are several main actions you can choose from. If you are at a city, you can drop off goods and then perform the city action. If you are at a village, you may perform a number of village actions based on how far you've traveled. You could fulfill quests if there's one present at that location, or you can perform a special assistant action if one of your assistants are there. Then players are going to drop to their hand limit, and the next player in line goes. There's basically two main concepts that are involved in the game that contribute to your points. The first is a deck of cards, and this deck is variable, in which you have two separate decks, one you're going to use every single game, and the other deck that you're going to draw from, you're going to draw a certain number of cards and shuffle it with the other deck. And on top of that, these cards have several functions. They have some sort of benefit if you play them into your tableau, but they also have different good icons listed on the side of them. This is how you're going to be dropping off goods to the different cities. This is important because everyone has a shipboard in front of them with a bunch of discs on them, and removing these discs give you a variety of benefits. You could receive money, you could get victory points, or you could even get better actions. The other concept is an influence track on the main board. This keeps track of your influence you have with each nation, which you acquire by taking a combat action at a city space. There are also cubes on these tracks that players will be placing on the board in different cities and villages, and the amount of cubes left at the end of the game will determine how many points your influence is worth in each one of those cities. There's actually quite a few other things going on in this game. This is a very basic overview because there's actually quite a few moving parts in this game. And I think that's actually what makes this game great is the depth to complexity ratio. Turns for the most part are fairly simple. You move your boat, you take an action, but there's so many other things you can do. Yeah. There's so many other points you can score. You have that card play mechanic where you're going to have cards and they're multifunctioned where if you discard it, like you lose out on that action or whatever benefit that card can give you, but it frees up a disc on your board, unlocking different things on your board. Mm -hmm. You know, if you play cards to your tableau, then you could get a variety of different actions. You can increase your income. You could travel on an exploration track that's on the bottom of a board and giving you all these benefits. So there's a lot of decisions to make with very simple turn structures. The turn structures are simple, although it does feel very complicated. There's just so much going on. It's a lot to learn. Certainly, teaching the game has its struggles just because it can be very overwhelming for players mm -hmm. when they're first taking a look at it because they're trying to figure out how all of it works together. Like I said, there's a ton of moving parts with this game, but structurally, turn to turn, 
pretty simple. Once you get the hang of it, yeah. Yeah. Once you get the hang of it, I I didn't have any problems playing the game, following along. Um, I was a little overwhelmed by all the choices, so I kind of limited what I did and just kind of ignored the things that were a little too complicated for me and focused on just the things I understood. And that, that kind of got me through that first playthrough and helped me understand the game a little bit more. I want to say crunchy. Yeah, it's very heavy, crunchy, yeah. thinky. There's a lot of decisions to be made. I think I like the push and pull because you're moving around the Caribbean and your ship can move one to seven spaces, which at first glance seems kind of weird, but you can't circle the entire thing in like one turn. Mm -hmm. You have to take multiple turns. So it gives you enough reach where you can quote unquote push the game forward while still being able to take actions. Yeah. And it's an interesting aspect where depending on how far you move is how many village actions you can do. So the way the board is set up, there's typically so many city uh, action spaces and those are all predetermined at the beginning of the board. And then if you move to something other than a city, it's considered a village. And most of those village actions can be one of three things, playing a card, getting rid of a card, collecting money, that kind of stuff. But if you move one to three spaces, you can only take one of those actions. If you move four to f four to five spaces, you can take two. If you move six to seven, you can take three. So there's a lot of decisions to be made of how far you're going to push forward. Like how many actions are you trying to get in this particular round? Mm hmm while trying to limit the other players' actions. You're limited by what other players do because if they get there first, they might take the action you wanted to do. Yeah, specifically dropping off the goods. Mm -hmm. they can That can get clogged up. Yeah, and I like that part of the, the game a lot. I like delivering goods and taking those discs off my board because then you get like better actions and stuff, and I think that's a lot of fun. It, it's very rewarding mm -hmm. to like unlock something. And it could be, you could end up just unlocking, like, I get five coins. Because money in the beginning of the game tends to be pretty tight. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of just starts opening up after that, which has this nice buildup. Mm -hmm. The other thing I like, and it's a good decision that I believe they made, was the way that round end triggers is the first person to land at the last spot triggers it. But everyone still has an additional turn. Yeah, it's not terribly punishing. Yeah, it doesn't just end. There's definitely a lot of strategy about how fast you're going to go. I kind of want to stop by each spot to do the best things that I can, but I also want to like go really fast to stop other people from doing every action too. I like that push and pull of it. I think that's the reason why I like those style of games is there's a lot of there's a lot of decisions to be made just about moving. Mm -hmm. I want to take as many actions as I can, but I want to make sure, you know, Ashley doesn't get the same amount of actions. I want to make sure I limit how many she's getting. Mm -hmm. So I want to be a little bit faster than her. You whatever. kind of adjust as you see what other players are doing. Yes. And you score quite a bit of points throughout the game. Then you're going to be scoring a lot of end game points. It has a nice balance where you're scoring some points now, some points later. And mm -hmm. end game scoring can be really interesting because you're going to be scoring based on the cards that you've played in your tableau. But then you have those three nations. And the way that works is as you progress up on the influence in each nation, you're going to cross different multipliers. And based on how many cubes have been removed is going to be a certain number of points. So for example, if let's say a number of cubes are removed and they're showing like three points, well now if you're at level three, if your multiplier is three, you're going to score nine points for it. And there's you can score quite a few points off of that. Yeah, you definitely don't want to ignore that. You'll be left out at the end of the game. Yeah, you can score a ton of points with that. And that 
part is interesting because you're always kind of looking at what everyone else is doing. Well, somebody's fighting for France a lot. Well, maybe I just want to start pushing myself up on this France track just so I can piggyback off what this player is doing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of like little interactions like that. There's a lot of strategy in there. And that's the part a little bit to me that was um, a little over my head when I played it. I didn't quite understand how it was going to play out at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. And so learning that was helped me like the game more once I understood that. Yep. So one of the main ways you're going to be moving up those influence tracks is through combat. And this is the piece that I think is the most fiddly in the game. Because mm -hmm. the way it works is when you go to the Maracaibo spot, you can take a combat action. You draw a tile, and then the tile is going to have represented all three nations on it. And then it's going to have a certain number of combat points. Mm -hmm. And then you have actions on your shipboard that allow you to use those action points. Something as simple as you use two action points to move up one spot on the influence track. You can use five to move up two spots. Or you can place a cube on the board in cities. And by doing that, you can get like little benefits. Like you can get a little bit of money. You can get a couple points here and there. So there's a way of doing that. But then you can spend six combat points to kick out another cube. Mm -hmm. I think when teaching the game, that is the most like... That's the hardest part to wrap your mind around. It's almost a little too fiddly i think once you've played the game several times and you understand how that works it's fine yeah i actually really enjoyed the combat once i got it. it took me a while to get it but once i got it i really enjoyed it because you're not combating with your opponents you're combating with whatever it is you're combating in the game i guess well and they call it combat but it's more an action point by sort of yeah and you have a little track on your shipboard that's combat points mm -hmm. that you can use in addition to whatever's on those tiles. And sometimes you'll get benefits depending on what position certain nations are on. So on the tile, it might say, if you choose to fight for the third place nation, you get an extra two combat points or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that kind of guides you of who to fight for. Yeah, sometimes it does influence your decision. Yeah, I like it. Once once I got my mind around it, I, I really enjoyed that part of it. It was very Euro-y. There was no luck involved. Very straightforward. I love how people can take different approaches to this game and still be competitive. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other thing that I really like. So we played a game where somebody focused on like building cards. That's all they did. And they were very close with other people who focused mostly on that influence track. So there's a ton of ways to score points in this game. Mm -hmm. And you can almost dabble in a few of them and you can still do well. You don't have to focus specifically every single time on this one thing. Which is good because of the way the game plays out. You kind of react to what everyone else is doing. Yep. So uh, what would you rate this game? I give it a seven. I enjoy it. It's a little overwhelming for me, but I still really enjoy it. And I'd be willing to play it again. And I would be willing to kind of keep playing it and dive a little deeper into it. I'm going to give this game a nine out of ten. I love this game. I'm slightly biased, partly because Alexander Fitzger is probably my favorite designer. Mm -hmm. I love most of the stuff that he does. So, I mean, I imagine there's a little bias towards that. But, yeah, I, I love this game. Um, You've also played it a lot. I have played it a ton, yes. And it's, you know, my wife and I have played this game quite a bit. There's actually a campaign in it. And there's they say there's legacy elements, which I don't, I haven't delved into that yet. But that's one of those games that we're probably going to end up playing the, through the campaign. Yeah. I really like this game. I would recommend giving this game a try if you like Rondell's economic exploration games. I mean, even if you like games with a uh, very fairly simple turn structure, but deep, meaningful decisions, mm -hmm. definitely give this game a try. That's Maracaibo. This week I played Merchants of Magic, a set a watch tale. 
It's a roll and write game designed by Clarence Simpson, published by Rock Manor Game. This game takes place in the Set a Watch universe, which I'm not familiar with. I don't know. Have you heard of it, Bob? I think it's a D&D theme. The game Set a Watch is, if I remember correctly, you have a fire in the center and you have a watch and you're cooperatively trying to keep your fire going throughout the night. You got baddies coming in, trying to snuff it out, that kind of thing. So this takes place in the same universe, but it's a standalone game. In this game, you're the owner of a magic item shop, crafting items and researching spells to sell to the adventurers of the watch. You do this by rolling four dice each round, a six-sided, eight-sided, ten-sided, and twelve-sided die. Then each player selects two of them to craft items or research enchantments for your shop. As you craft items and research spells, you start stocking items and earning potions that let you manipulate the die. Ventures travel from shop to shop, so you need to stock the exact items on the order card in front of you. If you have an item an adventurer needs, you earn the coin. But if you wait too long to fulfill the order, adventurers will become impatient and visit your competitor next door. After 10 rounds, the player who has earned the most coin wins. What makes this game challenging is that you see what items the adventurer wants to buy ahead of time, and it gives you an opportunity to to plan ahead. There are some strategy about what you create and the new cards that become available. You'll also want to be mindful of what the person on your right is crafting, because if they're crafting certain items, then they'll be able to fulfill those orders, so the orders won't make it to you. When I took a look at the box, I thought, well, I don't know if this is going to be a game for me. It looks kind of dark, kind of a uh, fantasy theme. Um, it wouldn't have been something I would have tried on my own, but I did enjoy the game because I, lo- I love rolling rights. I was definitely down to play. You said the dark like D&D theme with such disgust in your voice. No, no, just uh, disappointment, you know. But sure. it was kind of fun. Like you get a couple die, you, you can decide what to do with those die. You start kind of crafting things like maybe you make a backpack and you make an enchantment spell. So now you can make an enchanted backpack. So if an adventurer wants an enchanted backpack, now you can make that item. There's definitely a lot of luck in the game where you can only you know sell items that um, adventurers want that are in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you can't make it in time, then it passes along to the person to your left. I'm going to say right now that that's the part I don't like. I've gone on at length, I feel like, about how I'm kind of just over rolling right games. And this game, I'm not going to say no. You wanted to play it. And I was like, yeah, I'm down. Like, uh-huh. I'll, I'll give it a try. And while I understand it's creative in such a way that they're constantly moving and you're having to keep an eye on what's constantly filtering around the table, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I feel like the winner is generally going to be the one that has the most, quote unquote, luck in the game. Yes, you you have to make decisions about what you're crafting mm-hmm. with those dice. Side note, what you craft, how you craft with the dice, I really like that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. Yep. But specifically, when it comes to that piece, for whatever reason, in my head, it just felt like the person who got lucky won. Who got the most items in front of them? Kinda. So, so there's keywords you're trying to create, right? Mm-hmm. Fiery dragon spear. Well, whoever crafts dragon, whoever does that first will have an advantage on all the dragon stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a deck of cards that you randomly draw from. Yeah. So you might craft dragon, but barely see any dragon stuff. Yes. The game we played, we played at a fairly larger table. There was like seven or eight of us. Yep, it goes up to eight. Goes up to eight, which is cool. I like the fact that it goes that high. But it's a rolling, right? They can go to 100, right? But the problem with that is you can't really, there's no way of knowing what other people are doing, except for maybe the person next to you. 
I couldn't see what was on the opposite side, so there's nothing I could plan for. And the thing is, the way you shift your cards is you shift one over, and then the other one shifts closer. Mm -hmm. So you're only ever shifting one over to the other player. So they still have an opportunity to build that stuff. And like I said, it just felt luck-based. If I got lucky at my draws, I would be able to just build stuff. And I think what did it is the player next to me got something, and he's like, oh, I already got it, and then just crafted it. Because he had already built that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I don't know how to say it punishes everyone else, but he got lucky on his pulls and I think he won. Mm-hmm. But part of it was, again, he he crafted those specific things and you could argue that I could have done that. But you don't know what's going to come up. You're kind of just crafting things. I mean, you're looking ahead, but I had made something and then noticed that the person on my right had also made that. So I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get any of those items because he'll be able to just snag them all up. Yeah, and it it was one of those things that the only things you know specifically that you can make are you get a adventurer, like a little adventurer card. Yep. And they're looking for specific equipment. And, I like that a lot. You know, and they're going to be at your shop. So you know specifically, okay, if I focus on these, I know I can craft this stuff. And it gives you some additional things, right? So that's cool. But yeah, I can't get over the fact that for a game as long as it is, it felt like whoever was the luckiest won. There's a little bit of that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I don't mind luck in roll and rights. I think they naturally have a lot of luck to them. The way you set yourself up and what benefits you, you're just going to get luck of the roll. You know, it doesn't bother me that much, but I definitely understand the complaint. You know, if, if you think that luck part will bother you, you probably won't enjoy this game. I did like the use of the dice. So you roll these dice and you get these numbers and then you have two sections on your board. You have the crafting side and then you have what, the elemental side? Yeah, the magic side. The magic side. What you're trying to do is get dice values above the number, equal to or above on the crafting side. And then on the magic side, you're supposed to, you want to get them below. And those dice use the higher dice. And then the ones that are um, the crafting side use the lower dice, the six-sided. I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was cool choice space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Granted, you roll and you kind of just have to deal with what you get. There is mitigation. You do get potions, which can add or subtract to your dice rolls. Mm Mm-hmm. So you're able to mitigate them. You're able to buy additional dice. So all that stuff I like. Everybody's working within the same dice rolls. It boggles my mind that how nice those sheets are that the spot where you write, because you write down the dice numbers and then you can cross off the ones you use. That part is so small. I thought we were done. I was like, oh, okay, this is the end. And they're like, no, we have one more round. I'm like, but my, my dice are filled. I missed a spot just because I was just casually writing. Mm-hmm. It's not like I write big. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, we yeah, have I've another round? I've done that every game I've played this. I like have to squeeze numbers in at the end because I don't fit it in. <laughs> it blows my mind that they didn't like take a second and just change that a little bit because that, that sheet is not small. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of room for it. Yeah. Just why, like, why? Yeah. Why did you do it that way? Yeah, I agree with you almost 100%. I like the game. I love the dice. I love the way that they play out and the way you select them. I like that you build these items, but I don't like the randomness of what adventurers come to you with what requests, you know, and how that kind of passes along. You know, I feel like that's really luck-based, but you could could get points other ways as well. You know, there's some charms you can do that give you points. But yeah, you definitely want to get those items. Like, you're hard to win if you don't get those items. Yeah, the charms give you points if you... Collect build, items. Yeah, yeah it's based on the, the number items. of items you build. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
yeah, that's my only complaint. I played again because I feel like it was short enough to where it didn't bother me that I didn't win. I still had a lot of fun in trying to come up with the best ones. There's not a lot of combo in like in a traditional uh, roll and write. You're, you kind of do combos. There's no combos really in this game. Yep. So it's a little different in that style. I would play it again. I thought it was I thought it was fine. Yeah. I personally like the theme. But again, that's, I mean, generic fantasy in board games is, you know, just one of those things that you either love them or you don't. Mm-hmm. I would rate it a seven. What about you? Uh, I would give it a six out of 10, I think. Yeah. I'd play it again. There's no need for me to like go seek it out. But if we were all sitting there and there was eight of us and we needed to sit down and play a game, I'd play it. Yeah. If you love rolling rights, you should definitely give it a try because it's a little different. Yep. Um, if you enjoy the fantasy theme, I'd recommend it. If you don't like rolling rights, it is different than traditional rolling rights. So it's worth checking out at least. I'd give it a shot. That's uh, Merchants of Magic, a set, a watch tale. The next game I want to talk about is Wingspan. This is an engine building game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave, published by Stonemeyer Games. In this game, players are bird enthusiasts seeking to discover and attract birds to your network of wildlife preserves. They do this by acquiring and activating different birds in their preserve. Wingspan is played over the course of four rounds. Each player begins the game with eight action cubes, which represent the amount of actions they can take turn to turn. On a player's turn, they are going to take one of four different actions. One, you could play a bird card from a hand of cards that you have. Two, you can gain food and activate any birds in your forest line. You can lay eggs and activate any grassland birds you may have. Or lastly, you can draw bird cards and activate any wetland birds you have. After all players have used their action cubes, the round will end with players placing one of their action cubes on an end of round goal card, which means that in later rounds, players will actually have less actions to take. Each action is going to correspond to a different land type on a player's personal board. As players play bird cards into these different habitats, the actions become stronger and they can even activate birds that they have played. So for example, at the beginning of the game, you can only lay one egg. But as you play birds to the grassland area, you gain the ability to lay additional eggs. So play continues for those four rounds, and then players do a final scoring. You score points for your different bird cards, eggs you have placed, any food that you may have put on birds through the bird action, any cards you have tucked again through bird actions, any end-of-round bonuses, and then finally bonus cards. Players are going to start the game with a bonus card and could potentially earn more throughout the game. I think what makes this game great is the theme and artwork. Oh, yeah. It's extremely approachable. Mm -hmm. This is one of the first games that became popular of this theme where it's nature and it's not nerd theme, I think. And I think it really started a trend. Yeah, it's not generic fantasy. It's not Mm -hmm. science fiction. Mm -hmm. It's not trading in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's this beautiful scene with this bird on top of it. The art cover is. It's gorgeous. It makes you think, oh, maybe I'd like to play board games. Yeah, it's one of those like games that just exploded mm-hmm. that even people who are non-gamers have like heard of it or have played it. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fairly complicated game. There's a lot of unique mechanisms that people who don't play board games are not familiar with, but they still love it and play it a lot. I think it helps too that Stonemeyer Games specifically released it because the type of production they do in their games is phenomenal yeah down to the type quality of cards the feel of the player boards Mm -hmm. the feel of the rule book there's a lot of good things about the decisions they make when it comes to other things outside of gameplay and artwork they think about how the rule book feels in your hand yeah it's just just love like taking the pieces out and touching them and yeah i love it 
I love the cards in the game. There's a huge deck of cards and every single card is unique. Each card is a different bird. And at the bottom, it has little bird facts about that bird. Yeah, it's, it's so super good. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you also have obviously the wingspan of each bird. Yeah, it's on there. Yep. yep. And the, the way they creatively use that feature throughout the game is one of the things we talked about scoring por- points is you can tuck cards underneath other birds. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's a predatory bird that will eat another bird. Yeah. So what you do is you randomly flip over a card and it'll say if its wingspan is underneath 72 centimeters, it eats it and you put it underneath the card. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then you, you don't, you're not catching that bird. Yeah. Right. That one flew away. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The theme is great. I love how you can place the wetland birds in the wetlands, but there are some birds that you could place. Some birds live in the wetlands or in the trees, so you can place it in either area. Yep. And I like that too. It gives you a lot of cool choices to make, you know, for the first few rounds where you're you're just building up this engine of birds. And I like the progression where in the beginning you can only you can only do a couple things, but then as you're playing birds, you get to do more stuff. Like in order to play birds into your habitats, you need to pay food, attract them with food. And there's a variety of things. It could be mice. Depending on what your bird likes to eat. Very dramatic. Yeah, exactly. And it's all based on that. So in the beginning, you can only get one kind of food token. Well, you place a couple of birds. Now, all of a sudden, you can get two food tokens. Well, now you can get three food tokens. Mm-hmm. And it just gives you this ability to play more birds and acquire more things. Oh, and the bir- the food tokens come from these dice. And it comes with this really cute dice tower that you assemble that's shaped like a bird feeder. So you drop the dice in this bird feeder and they come out and it's food for the birds. It's so cute. I, I thought it was a birdhouse. Isn't it a birdhouse? Oh, probably. Same thing. Bird feeder, birdhouse. It's not the same thing, but that's besides the point. Um, Yes. And that's what goes back to that Stonemaier Games thing where that's included. Mm -hmm. That is not like an additional thing. Mm -hmm. You always get that. I personally don't care that much about it, that dice tower. It's cool thematically to have it. I, whatever. I mean, I see why he put it in there. It's cute. If I was a non-gamer and I saw that, I'd be like, man, that's awesome. Mm Mm-hmm. But for me, whatever. I mean, it just honestly, it just clogs the box up a little bit for me when I'm trying to put other (laughs) stuff in there, specifically because it's come out with a variety of expansions, too. Yeah, this is a great game. I love this game. I think it's it's popular for a reason. It's fun. It's beautiful. It's it's sciencey. It's got some facts in there. You know, I love it. I love everything about it. I love the theme and I love the artwork. I love it. I love the approachability of it. And I love the trend it feels like this started. I don't know if this is necessarily the game that started the trend of games like this. For example, Meadow, Cascadia, these types of approachable themes. This might not have been the first, but it's definitely pushed things because of its popularity forward mm-hmm. into that that creative space where people are choosing alternative themes to the ones that we normally have. Yeah, because they sell. People like them. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse by saying, but it's just the approachability of it, mm-hmm. how easy it is for people to look at it and just be intrigued by it and not it's non-threatening. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a pretty complicated, heavy game. It you can know, If you be. were to buy it and you know teach it to yourself with a rule book, that can be overwhelming. Well, they have a quick start guide too. If you get newer versions, they'll have a like a bag full of quick start stuff. Mm-hmm where you basically give people a certain cards and then it walks you through the turn structure, uh-huh. which is an incredibly smart decision. Yeah, It just makes a game like that, especially for non-gamers, it turns a game that's more complicated than a welcoming game into a welcoming game. Yeah, I highly recommend this game. If you haven't tried it yet, you need to. It's definitely one of those ones. It's going to be around for a long time, super popular. You got to try it because at least then you'll know what it's all about. 
Yes. Now, I have a negative. Okay. And this is my negative. It is an engine building game. Yep. And what I've found over the last several plays, I want to say, I've found myself in the very last round, round four, taking the same action over and over and over. Playing eggs? Most of the time, yes. Not all the time. And it has boiled down to, I'll look at my hand of cards, which at that point is pretty minimal because mm-hmm. I've played most of them. And I'll look at my hand of cards and I'll look at my tableau and I'll say, okay, if I take the lay eggs action, I will score eight points every single time I do it. And I know based on the birds, because every bird has a certain amount of eggs that it can lay. Once it lays its maximum, you can't put any more eggs. But I'll look and say, okay, I can do this for the next four turns and be able to absorb that into my tableau. Uh-huh. There was one game where I think it was gain food because I was able to distribute food onto birds and do a couple other things. Mm-hmm. And I love engine building games. I love putting together the pieces and then running it. Mm-hmm. But I don't like running it turn after turn after turn after turn. Maybe that just goes to show how efficient you are at building a good engine. That's I unlikely. Coming. That is unlikely. I feel like the first time I played, I was like, oh, I wish we had one more round because I didn't quite build the engine up yet. You know, and I haven't had a turn like that. I usually try to build at least like one more bird at the end because you get points for your birds. You know, I try to run the eggs one more time and then I might do something that satisfies another requirement I have. So I haven't had that problem. It's happened to me probably the last like four games I've played where throughout the game I'll be building stuff up and then at the very end it's like, okay, I can play this bird card for three points or I can lay eggs for seven. I'm going to lay eggs. But that's only because you got a good engine because you can't just lay eggs forever. You'll run out of egg spots unless you haven't done it throughout the game and you played a bunch of birds and then that's your time to get all the eggs out. Well, and you're, you have to eventually spend eggs regardless because mm-hmm. in order to advance in certain spots on your tableau to continue advancing in your different habitats, you need to eventually start spending eggs thematically like the egg hatches, right? You get this bird, but so you do have to end up spending those eggs. So that is my only complaint though. I and, don't think that's a complaint. I think that's fun. Ooh, I built a good engine. I'm going to run it a bunch of times. How many I, times have you played engine building games? And then you get to the end and you're like, all right, I finally got this good engine. You do it once and then the game ends. You don't need to do it again. Yeah, but I got to run it. There's a fine line between running your engine a couple times and running your engine for the entire last round. Yeah, I can see that. So, and it's not always laying eggs. That's usually what it was. I think probably two or three out of the four times it was laying eggs. Usually laying eggs because that's the only thing that gives you points. Like getting extra food and getting extra cards aren't going to get you points. Unless you've got a really good engine set up where you're getting that card and then you're tucking a card, something along those lines. So I would say it's because you've got a good engine. You're just good at the game. But I don't think I won a couple of those. Like I I get what you're saying. And it, maybe it's an efficiency thing. Like I'm not a wingspan savant where I'm just creating a, this fantastic engine. Yeah. You know, you it can't just... be that good at it. You are limited to the cards that you get in your hand. You know, it's a giant deck of cards. You're not yep. going to get the same cards twice. Oh, side note, what I do want to say that made me think the objective cards that you get, mm-hmm. what I love about these objective cards is they'll say you score so many points based on these types of birds. And then it'll say in the bottom, the deck consists of 33% of these kinds of birds. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. They let you know like how easy is this to accomplish? Yeah. It's going to score you a lot of points, but it's only 12% of the deck. Do you want to chance it or do you want to take your other goal card? Yeah, because you don't even, the whole game, you don't go through the whole deck. There's a lot no. of 
Um, you know, you want to try to get as many cards as you can to try to get the best cards, but you're really limited on the cards you draw. Yep. Yeah. It's really good and tight in good ways. I like it a lot. Let's get your rating before you, we hear I give it a nine. I love it. Nine out of 10. Mm-hmm. I am giving it a seven and a half out of 10. Okay. Despite that engine piece at the very end, everything leading up to that is just so good. Mm-hmm. So clean, such a clean streamlined design quick turns like i keep bringing that up i feel like over the episodes is quick turns i love turns that are fast yeah you know i don't like having to sit kate may is a prime example those turn structures are so slow that it drives me crazy something like this put a cube down you activate the row something in the very beginning you're not doing a whole lot i do like how you get less cubes later on Mm -hmm. so it has this reverse mechanic where normally in a lot of games you get to do more later on this you do less later on Mm -hmm. which i think is cool but you've yeah. got this engine built up, so each turn yeah. gives you more. I like it. Like I said, seven and a half out of ten. My only complaint, again, is that last little piece doing running that engine as often as it is. It is still satisfying being able to run that engine, but I don't need to run it four times. I can run it a couple and be fine. Sure. But yeah, if you haven't tried this game, you got to give it a go. If you love engine builders, great artwork, streamlined gameplay. If you're a bird fan, mm-hmm. this is definitely up your alley. Try it out. That's Wingspan. All right, this week I played Mariposas. It's a grid movement set collection game. It's also designed by Elizabeth Hargrove and published by AEG. So this game is all about monarch butterflies. Every spring, millions of monarch butterflies leave Mexico to spread out across Northern America. Every fall, millions fly back to Mexico. However, no single butterfly ever makes the round trip. This game lets players be part of this amazing journey. Mariposas is played in three seasons. In general, your butterflies try to head north in spring, spread out in the summer, and then return south in the fall. The end of each season brings a scoring round, and at the end of fall, the players with the most successful families of butterflies wins the game by having the most points. Players earn points by returning fourth-generation butterflies back to Mexico, completing objectives each season, and collecting life cycle cards of the same color. They do this by moving their butterflies around the board, collecting flower and life cycle cards and reproducing their butterflies. What makes this game so unique is the theme. It really captures flying north, reproducing, and only the fourth generation butterflies making it back to Mexico. It's a beautiful game that has a lot to teach you. However, the mechanics are pretty simple and it doesn't feel like it has enough of the puzzly aspect I was kind of hoping for. I agree 100%. And I would add in there that the player interaction is non-existent. Yeah, which is fine. I'm fine with that because it's butterflies. They can all live peacefully. There's no restrictions on the spaces that you go to because if another butterfly is there, that's okay. You could still land there. That's the part I wish there would be a little bit more interaction with, Mm -hmm. blocking people. Yeah. Because as it stands now, the only thing that you can do to a player is so there's different like station t- i think there's called there's station. stations yeah. yeah so there's different station tiles that you can go to and when you land on it and if you're the first one to flip it you roll a die and you get a random flower resource mm-hmm. and then you get whatever that station mm-hmm. provides you which is both good and bad because you get this resource that other people won't get for going there mm-hmm. but they also don't have to discover what's there yeah they, they can, now know yeah they know so if they want to if they need that item they go there if they don't they can ignore it yeah you're really free to go anywhere on the board there's some ways you score by going in certain areas but there's this really interesting card mechanic of your movement 
And I like that you get two cards so you can move two different ways. So in a lot of them, you can choose to move one butterfly, multiple spots, or or a couple butterflies, different, you know, different spots. But it doesn't really, it doesn't feel like it matters. Like I could just kind of go anywhere. I can make the use of any movement card. So being strategic with my movement doesn't feel like it matters very much. That's my critique of the game. I agree. And I think it doesn't feel restrictive enough. And I wonder if you couldn't go to a space that's occupied by another player, if that would make a difference. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's very pretty game. There's a lot of things you can do. You can go wherever you want. Like be free like a butterfly, you know, just do whatever. But the only things that restrict your movement are goal cards. So a specific goal card is going to say, all right, if you have butterflies above Atlanta, Mm -hmm. you're going to score points. You can be anywhere in the United States above Atlanta. Yeah, as long as you're just above it. Yeah, and there's a butter, the flower collection aspect. You want to get the same types of flowers, so that can kind of lead your decision. But you don't need it because you just spend one more flower. You can spend yeah. all different flowers. So it's really just so open and free that it doesn't feel very challenging. I think because of the lack of restriction, it doesn't feel like your decisions are nearly as important as they could be. Yeah. That's what it ultimately boils down to. Yeah. And you me. kind of want to get points based on where you're at at the end of the season. You also want do the set collection because that can give you a special powers throughout the game and they earn you points as well. But then you also want to make it back to Mexico with your fourth generation butterflies. And it's near impossible to do. You definitely can't do it all. And you kind of want to focus on one thing, but you're also like, I wanted to do it all and I couldn't. And and typically that's good. But in this game, it just kind of felt like disappointing. Like, oh, I didn't get to make it all the way back yet. Agreed. It just felt harder than it should have been for how free-flowing easy the game was. Agreed. I played a game recently of it, and I think one person brought butterflies back, maybe two, and everyone towards the end got all bummed out that they couldn't. Yeah. You can build double four butterflies, Mm -hmm. like you flip the four over, and in my head I was like, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm going to at least try to get this set back. And then I realized it's 13 spots away. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have two more moves. There's no, there's absolutely zero way I can get this butterfly back. Because the most I think you can move on a turn is like five. Yeah. There is a card that allows you to add to that. So maybe six. Yeah. If you plan, you have to plan ahead and know that. Yeah. And that's what made me want to play it again. I'm like, well, maybe I'll be better about it. I'll only send my certain butterflies up there and keep certain ones down low so that I can make sure that those get back. When I played it, all of us got one butterfly back. That was the double butterfly. So we all scored two butterflies that came back, but we barely all got back, you know? Yeah. And it was just one and the rest of them just stayed up there. I'd wanted to play it again just to try to see if it would get better, if I kind of knew how the game was going to go and progress. But I'm also, it's it's not interesting enough to pull me back so I don't know that I can get people to play it again with me. I don't think I'll be keeping this game despite the beautiful theme. I love the the theme around it. It's great. Yep, I agree with everything you said. If somebody wanted to play it with me, I'd be totally willing to play it, but I don't know that I'm going to get very many people. Honestly, I might try to talk them into playing something else. So what would you rate this, Bob? I think I would rate it a five and a half out of ten. Yeah, I was going to give it a six. I love the theme. It's beautiful, but the, the strategy just isn't there for me. Yes. I'd still recommend playing it, giving it a shot. If you really like the theme, if you want kind of a chill game where there's just... It doesn't feel like um, a lot of competition. You're just playing, you know, beautiful components, beautiful um, things to do. You know, you, you don't like that heavy strategy thinky stuff where you just kind of want to do whatever you want. I still think you might really enjoy the game. 
there's definitely a specific group that this game would be perfect for. Yeah. So we talked about Wingspan. We're talking about Mariposas. They shouldn't necessarily be compared, but they have been. So let's kind of compare the two. And I think the problem with Mariposa specifically is because Wingspan was such a hit, mm-hmm. it blew up when it came out mm-hmm. that there was an unrealistic expectation going towards Mariposa that it was going to be something exactly the same, yeah. something as good. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think our ratings of the game isn't based on that, but I can't say for certain that my rating would be different had I not played wingspan first and compared it to him yeah yes you naturally you unfortunately you naturally are going to compare those two because it's the same designer the themes aren't the same but they're very similar in terms of approachability Mm -hmm. this game's a little less restrictive you know i could see this being more of a welcoming game where wingspan's a little bit slightly complicated has a lot more restriction on what you can play this one is just less restriction i can see where people would like this as well yeah, there's definitely a, a group that this game is perfect for. And unfortunately, I don't think it's my group. I don't think it's necessarily a lot of the hobby gamers. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a welcoming game. It has a very cool theme. It's very wide open. I, we talked about sandbox games in the last episode. In some ways, this kind of is a sandbox game. Like You can kind of just go wherever. You can go and do the set collection. You can go and try to score the points at the end of the game, or you can just get try to get your butterflies back to Mexico. Um, she put a lot of effort into the theme and getting that all correct. She learned all about butterflies, and it really shows in the game, too. I really appreciate the fact that both her games have a lot of factual data, mm-hmm. and they were able to translate that so well into a board game. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. Honestly, as much as Mariposa's wasn't necessarily for me, I'm still excited to see what else she's going to come up with. Yeah, I love how much thought she put into it. The mechanics really make sense with the theme of the game. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just not my style. It's just not my favorite. I think I know what it is. It's so easy to go wherever you want, except back down to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. I I. I think that's what it is because you can go wherever you want. If you want to make sure you hit some of those goal cards so you're scoring points. Mm -hmm. I think the last game we played, none of us got the first goal card. We just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. We just didn't focus on it. And then at the very end, people were trying to rush back and it was like one person made it. Mm -hmm. At one point, I was like, I can't. So I need to focus on whatever points I can get off these goal cards. So for as free flowing and go wherever you want as the game is. And then when you try to like go back to Mexico, they're like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, can't do that. You know, pick one. Yeah. I think that's the problem. Yep. Yep. That's exactly it. But still worth checking out if you're interested. That's Mariposas. That was going to wrap up the reviews of the games we've been playing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to give our top 10 welcoming games. Welcome back. Next up, we're going to talk about welcoming games. I'm really excited to talk about this because I love welcoming games. I have a lot of games on my top 100 that I think are great welcoming games. They definitely fit my style of gaming. So we each came up with our top 10 games. Bob, how did you land on your top 10? I chose games that I would be willing to teach and try to actively teach somebody who's not into the hobby that much. Mm-hmm. There's a couple caveats. One, I specifically made sure I did not include Ticket to Ride because that's I feel like that's just an easy choice. Okay. That would have been my number one. Yeah, I, I did too. We've been talking about that so much that I didn't include it. Yeah, it's I, we've beaten the horse dead with that. Mm-hmm. 
So I specifically didn't do that. And then the games aren't in order of my favorite. They're in order of what I think I would choose to teach a non-gamer game. Okay. So that's how I arranged it. It's not necessarily which games I like the most. It's which games do I think that I would be successful at teaching somebody. Okay. So my my games I chose based on what I think would be really good welcoming games and what I considered a welcoming game. I excluded everything that had really simple mechanics, you know, like can't stop, QE, games like that would definitely work for welcoming games. But I could also play those with people who aren't interested in the hobby that just want to play a game with me but don't want to play anything complicated. So I excluded those games. I consider these games to be ones that people might have played Ticket to Ride, loved it, came over, and they're like, Natasha, I want to get into board games. Teach me another one of your board games. So I consider these games not very complicated, easy to teach, but elevated, so not super simple. And I excluded party games from this list just because those I could play with anybody, even people that aren't interested. So this would be the type of people who have shown interest in hobby games, kind of wanted to get into it, learn a little bit more. And then the way I arranged them is I literally took them from my top 100 list and I put them in order. So these are my personal favorite games in order of my top 100. Ooh, a little spoiler into the top 100 games, huh? Yep, these will likely be on my top 100 if we ever do one, unless it changes. I didn't exclude party games, but looking at my list, I, yeah, I don't have any party games on it. Oh, okay. Huh, weird, because there was a couple good ones in there, but yeah, all right. All right, let's kick it off. Bob, what's your your number 10? My number 10 game is a game that is based off the pandemic system, and that is Forbidden Desert. This is uh, a step between something like Forbidden Island and Pandemic, where it's still a cooperative style game. I really like the mechanic of the shifting desert. So you're in the desert trying to find four pieces to reassemble your airship. You don't know where they are, It's based off how tiles meet. So a set of tiles are going to have arrows and wherever they intersect, that's where that piece is going to be. I think this game is just complicated enough for new players to kind of get their handle on it. Mm -hmm. I've tried teaching people pandemic. It can be a little overwhelming with some of the choices and stuff. And I found myself being more successful with something like Forbidden Desert. I think it's a good intro into a cooperative style game. I think it's approachable. I really like the mechanic of the shifting sands. I think anyone who's seen that thinks it's pretty cool. I like the airship pieces, like they're physical plastic pieces and you physically build the airship. That's what makes it cute. It's tactile. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that they're not generically in spots. You have to uncover stuff in order to find them. Mm-hmm. That exploration and like adventuring, finding something, mm-hmm. I think is really approachable and I think people really like it. So yeah, my number 10, Forbidden Desert. All right, my number 10 is Nidavellir. So this is a set collection game, and it also has a bidding mechanic. And I'm typically not a fan of bidding, but I like this because I feel like the stakes are low. Like if you lose the bid, you still get a card. Um, And so you're collecting cards, and people are really familiar with that. So that's not a new concept. I think it goes over really well. But it also has this step up where you have the bidding, and then you can also increase your coin so that you can kind of bid more each turn. And it's got this kind of, the the set collection gives you special abilities and the way each card scores is pretty straightforward and easy to grasp. Yeah, it's the only complicated piece really with that game is the specialists that you get. 
when you achieve certain, like a row of cards, you can get a specialist or whatever. Yeah, Some exactly. of those rules are finicky, but for the most part, the game's pretty straightforward, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an, a great one to start people off on, and that's Nidavellir. My number nine is a game called Takinoko, which is kind of a farming territory building style game. I think this game is extremely approachable. The artwork is super cute. What you're essentially doing is you're trying to fulfill objective cards. And the way you fulfill objective cards is by moving a gardener to grow bamboo. You're moving a panda to eat the bamboo. Or you're putting tiles down into a specific grid. On your turn, you're just taking a couple actions. And all you're trying to do is fulfill these goal cards. There's different ones based on what the panda eats and what the gardener is growing Mm -hmm. it's fun because it it almost feels like you're creating like a little story like the gardeners like getting you know frustrated with the panda Mm -hmm. because the panda keeps eating these pieces of bamboo Mm -hmm. it has a cool table presence because you're actually stacking these plastic pieces to grow bamboo Mm -hmm. you have these action discs that are real you know chunky you have the panda meeple you have well not even a meeple it's a miniature mm-hmm. panda miniature you have the gardener mi- miniature it's just it looks incredibly approachable it's fairly simple to teach when i've showed it to people and taught people it they've seemed to really enjoy it so i've had really good success teaching this game to newer newer players yeah my daughter loves this one as well it's a big hit in our family so yeah that is uh my number nine Takenoko. my number nine it's called Potion Explosion. This is Candy Crush the board game, but Candy Crush in a good way, like not yes. just like randomly doing things. But um, this year, taking marbles off of this tray, and if when you take a marble off, if the two marbles that touch each other that are left are the same color, then you also take those off. And if the two marbles after that touch each other, you get to take that. So you can kind of have this explosion where you just keep taking marbles. Once you take your marbles, you put them on your little tableau in front of you and you try to fulfill these potions once you've got enough marbles to fulfill a potion you drink the potion so we always drink you gotta it. make the sounds yeah you have, you to. have to and you drink it and then you get a special power that lets you do something fancy and you just kind of keep collecting more and more potions till the game is over is so fun it's a super fun game i made the mistake of playing it competitively on board game arena and Man, those people take that game seriously. <laughs> Do they? There's an app for it, too. I play it a lot on the app. It's really good. What, although I would say you don't want to wait till your kids are a little bit older to play it with them because when I was recommended the game, I got it out and played it with my son, and it was more of like, let's pick marbles off the floor game because we kept dropping the marbles. So that was uh, annoying. Yeah, I can see that. But now that I've waited a little bit, it's just a lot of fun. I love it. It's a great welcoming game because it's you know it's fun to to do those actions with the you know picking the marbles up. We also played the expansion, which adds a few modules in. And one time we played this game where you had to take your turn within like sixty seconds, and otherwise you got a penalty. And that's kind of hard because you want to kind of think about what to do. So that was really interesting. I like that. I like that. But then we also played with another addition where you had, if you dropped a marble, you had a penalty. So you had to play really fast, but not drop any marbles, which you always drop marbles. So there was, that was so much fun playing that one game. But you don't need that expansion. It's still good on its own. I don't know, man. I think that would be a necessary one. I like that. It, I, I should play it with that. That's That would be fun. It was so fun. We were playing... One night at board game night and one of our friends came in and he's like, what are you playing? We're like, shut up. Don't talk to us. We're playing. We only have 60 seconds and you can't drop anything. And it Don't was, talk to me right now. I'm making a decision. Yeah, it was so fun. That's uh, my number nine, Potion Explosion. 
My number eight is a game called Mountain Goats. I've talked about this in previous episodes. It is one of those games where you set up a bunch of cards, you're rolling some dice, and then with those dice, you're adding them together to create numbers to move up these tracks. And as soon as you hit the top of the track, you're collecting point tokens. You can knock people off the top of the track. This game is quick, simple, fun. There's always that little like jabbing at somebody like, I'm going to knock you off that 12 (laughs) spot. Yeah, it's fun. You're just, you're rolling some dice. You're having a good time. Generally speaking, when I'm teaching welcoming games to newer players, it's usually in a casual, you know, night where we're having friends over. Maybe we had some dinner. Maybe we're having a couple drinks or whatever. So something like this is very approachable. You can just roll some dice. You can move up some stuff. There's a little fun with trying to knock somebody down. You can be like, hey, get, you know, you, well, no, 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 do six, do six and six and knock him off that top there. That He's just scoring points. Mm-hmm. You can have a little bit of that interaction, which is fun. I love this game. Like I said, it's usually always in my bag whenever I go to a game night. At least right now, it's my kind of go-to filler game. I really like it. Number eight, Mountain Goats. My number eight is called Space Base. This game is a dice game. You roll the dice and you get to do whatever um, that number that you rolled allows you to based on the cards you have in front of you. But then also, if you kind of flip the cards over and put them on your top part, then you get to do uh, an action on everybody else's turn. And that's really what makes this game so fun is every time the dice are rolled, you get to look at the dice that are rolled and see if you get to activate any of the stuff on your board. It goes over really well with new players. It's a slightly more complicated with the way the mechanics work of flipping the card over but once you play a round or two everyone kind of gets it really quickly and it's just a a lot of fun because every turn you have to pay attention and do something you get something on your turn i think that's the best part is the fact that you're engaged on other players turns Mm -hmm. i think the easiest way to lose a a a new person is when they are bored before their turn comes. Mm-hmm. So something like this completely eliminates that. You're always paying attention to what the what dice are being rolled. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, this is this is a whole different style of game. Like this is really interesting. It's it's fun, but it's it's light. You know, it's pretty quick. It probably plays under an hour. That's my number eight space base. My number seven is a game called Tiny Towns, which we recently reviewed. Mm-hmm. And I really like this game. It's fairly easy to understand the turn structure. You grab a cube, you place it down. Mm -hmm. And the fun of it is that little puzzly aspect of trying to arrange your cubes in such a way that you can build buildings. I don't think I've ever played a version of this where we've gotten done and it hasn't been like, okay, let's play it again. Yeah, that's true. Although I don't know if I'd consider it a welcoming game because you end up kind of like people feeling stupid about themselves and feeling like they made mistakes. Just because sometimes you feel stupid about your turns doesn't mean like everyone else does. <laughs> hey, yeah, Everybody else is like, oh on. no, I screwed right. that up. All right. To be fair though, we recently played this game and we played it with two people that are newer to board games. Yeah. You even asked them, you're like, would you consider this like a welcoming game? And what'd they both say? They both said it was easy to learn. They both said yes, more specifically. <laughs> I, I don't. I think it's yeah. Maybe I think they're being nice to you. Nobody's ever nice to me. No, <laughs> it's one of those things. I think the turn structure is fast. I think everyone has that kind of like aha moment. Yeah. Where yeah. they're oh okay yes all right can we play again yeah because they figure it out and they understand how all the pieces work yeah I've had a lot of success teaching this with newer players I think it's a good gateway style game welcoming game my number seven tiny towns. 
All right, my number seven is Sagrada. This is a dice drafting game. You take out two dice per player and one extra dice. You roll the dice and then you kind of draft them, um, re- you know, snake style, you go around the table and then back the other way. And it's kind of, it's really puzzly. So you got to take this tire like, all right, I need a purple dice in this spot. It can be any number or I need a five in this spot. Could be any color. Or sometimes they say you need specifically a purple five in this spot. And there's also some rules around you know, the same color dice can't be next to each other. The same numbers can't be next to each other. It's a really fun little puzzly game um, with a lot of depth to it, but really simple mechanics. If you take a dice, as long as you don't put it in the wrong spot, you know, you can do with, with it what you want. And you've got some personal goals that you're trying to, to complete as well. I don't know if I would consider it a welcome game. Because and it's I'm too not complicated. Sa- I'm not saying that to like be mean about the tiny towns thing. It just... I think it's just a smidge too puzzly where you have to place the dice. It's a little too restrictive, Mm -hmm. but it depends on the welcoming player. There's certain players that even if they're not necessarily into board games, you can teach them a game like this and they still be able to learn it. Mm -hmm. It's 50-50 for me. I've had people learn this game and it just not click. And maybe that's my hesitation Mm, for adding it. But I can see definitely why people would consider it a welcoming game. There's rules around, you know, where to place it, but they're pretty obvious. I think it's a good welcoming game for somebody who's able to, you know, think of that abstract. Yeah, agreed. All right. That's my number seven, Sagrada. My number six is a cooperative style game called Horrified. This is a Universal Monsters cooperative game. And the goal is you're essentially hunting these Universal Monsters. It could be the Invisible Man, it could be Dracula, could be a variety of different things. And I think what's cool about it is because they're using the universal monsters, it's something everyone knows. Like you might not like Dracula or you might not like Mothman or whatever, but you're going to be familiar enough to understand. There's a Mothman? Well, maybe not in this particular version. Maybe that's the American version. Like, no, there's an actual thing called the Mothman? You are the least cultured person not ne- well, not least, but I've never heard of Mothman. Is that in Batman? I feel like that's a Batman character. I don't. Uh... I don't know Mothman. I- I've actually never played this game, so I don't have any opinions about it. Apparently, you do, though. <laughs> no, I'm just asking. I've never heard of Mothman. No, so you have certain objectives that you're trying to accomplish, and you're getting them by going to these cities, collecting tokens and stuff. And the way it scales is by adding additional figures. So in the beginning, you might only be trying to kill Dracula and the creature from the Black Lagoon. You you just had this like stone cold look of like, who? I've never heard of that one. I've heard of the Black Lagoon, but I couldn't tell you what it is. All right, hold on. Okay, so you know who Dracula is, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, do you know Frankenstein? Yeah, I heard of him. Bride of Frankenstein? Yeah, I can tell by the context who that is. Okay. Uh, Wolfman? Yep. Mm-hmm. The Mummy? Yep, I've heard of mummy. I mean, I know what mummies are. Is there the mummy? Is there yeah, one stick? Yeah, the with... mummy. Okay. I think Mothman is the American one. And regardless, you got. I'm all sidetracked. Anyway, I I really like this game. I think because it's Universal Monsters, it's extremely approachable. It's something that most people besides Natasha know a lot of these different characters. It's one of those games that's in Target. It's yeah. readily available. 
you know, it's a good price point for what you get in the packaging. It's uh, one of those Prospero Hall games. So it's not necessarily super expensive, but you're still getting good quality gameplay out of it. Mm -hmm. I really, I don't know, I really like this game. And like I said, the scaling is cool. So normally what you'll do is you'll pick a couple of the monsters to fight. Like, let's say it's the Invisible Man and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, if you want to make it harder, now you add in Dracula. Some might be more difficult than others. And then you can mix and match and scale it that way. I don't know. I really like it. That was my number six, Horrified. All right. My number six is Steam Park. This is a dice game. Um, it's really fun. You roll the dice and you can keep rolling it as many times as you want. You know, you kind of like maybe you roll six dice and then you keep two of them. You roll four dice. You keep one. You roll three now. I don't like any of those. You keep rolling it and you can stop whenever you want. And if you're the first person to stop, then you, you get to go first. And you get a bonus for doing that. So you want to roll them as fast as you can. That's a lot of fun. And then you take the dice and you build this um, theme park. You build all these roller coasters and you attract all these people to your park. And they make trash, which is negative. So you want to get rid of the trash. And then you also have these cards throughout the game that your objectives that you're trying to collect. And even if you don't satisfy any of the cards, you can still use your dice to play the cards and get at least a couple uh, points out of the whole thing. It's just a lot of fun. There's a lot of physical pieces, like the roller coasters are made out of cardboard. I really enjoy this game. Have you played it, Bob? I actually have not. I'll have to bring it sometime. I think it's a lot of fun. Great theme. Um, I've had really good luck introducing it to other people. Uh, I really like it. That's called Steam Park. My number five is a game Natasha has actually already mentioned, and that is Space Base. Mm -hmm. Mirrored everything that she said. I think the turns are fast. I think people can understand the concepts really quickly. People are engaged uh, for everyone else's turn. There, There's a variety of ways you can score points. There's a card that if you roll 12 like two or three times in a row, you just automatically win. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to do that. Yeah, you got to roll 12, right? Stuff like that is just, I think it's fun. I think it's a good game for people to get into. It keeps people constantly engaged turn to turn. Yeah. It's a space theme too, but it's all cartoony drawings. Yes. So it's really cute. So yes. it doesn't feel like super nerdy. Yeah, like a 1990s Saturday morning cartoon or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's my number five, Space Base. My number five is Azul. I love Azul. I actually like all three versions. You set out tiles in the middle of the board, and then you kind of draft them, and you need to place your tiles out in a certain spot to score you points. But you also um, want to make sure you're taking the tiles that your opponents would do really well in. You score points as you fulfill certain sections, but then at the end of the game, you also score more points. It's beautiful, you know, fairly quick game. Um, the scoring throughout the game is a little tricky the first time you play, but once you grasp it and then it, it's really simple and you can go with it then. I really like Azul. Yeah, that's a really good game. I really like Azul as well. That's my number five, Azul. My number four is Seven Wonders Architects. This game is the Seven Wonders game I've been trying to teach people for the last seven years, it feels like. Mm -hmm. We've always been told Seven Wonders is a, a good welcoming game. I have never been successful at it. Everyone looks at me, and maybe it's just the way I taught it, no. but everyone who looks at me, like they just never got it. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was just I was just poorly teaching it because everyone's just like, yeah, everyone is such a good welcoming game. I disagree. I can I trying to teach people Seven Wonders is awful. Trying to teach people Seven Wonders Architects, however, is way easier. It's such an easier concept to understand. And I think it boils down to your construction material in regular Seven Wonders. 
you produce that material round around around. So it's always available to you. And that's always one of those abstract things that's hard to like conceptualize in people's minds. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this, once you use it, you discard it, it's done. Mm -hmm. You have to collect another set in order to continue on. The way the game ends is somebody builds their wonder. It's still fast. It's not as fast as Seven Wonders because it's not simultaneous play, but it's still pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Pick one of three cards. When you get the cat token and it comes around to you, it's fun because you can actually look at the card. Mm -hmm. You know, you you make little noises whenever you take the <laughs> whenever <laughs> whenever you take the uh, the battle token with the horn. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever you take the cat token. Meow. Yeah, yeah, just those little things. It's fun. It's actually way easier to teach because of the streamlined gameplay plays up to seven players which is great which is hard to come by mm -hmm. in a lot of games yeah so yep my number four seven wonders architects yeah that's a good game my number four is stone age stone age is a worker placement game um set in the stone age it's a slightly more complicated game with more rules but i've had really good luck teaching this game i think it once you kind of teach it and you play around of it, it you know it kind of clicks right away it's a great introduction to worker placement games. It's it's a lot of fun. There's uh, dice rolling in it. So there's a little bit of luck, which I think works well with welcoming games because I want, when I teach people new games, I want them to have the ability to beat me in the game. And if there's a little luck, that kind of helps um, instead yeah, of pure cause strategy. Because you're just so good. <laughs> so good at games. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you get better with games the more you play. So. True. You know, I love Stone Age. I have a lot of fun. I love all the pieces. I like the collecting the cards always goes, uh, you know, it's fun. And then uh, building the huts. It's just one of the games I've been playing for a long time. And I just love Stone Age. Yeah, it's all right. I love it. It's a great game. That's my number four, Stone Age. My number three is Stone Age. I'm just kidding. It's not all right. I love this game. <laughs> Good setup there, Bob. Mirrored again with what you said. I think this game is really fun. Yes, you're rolling dice to collect resources, but you can mitigate them with tools. So there's that mitigation aspect. My only thing is whenever I teach this game, I make sure to let people know the importance of the cards mm -hmm. and how many points you can earn at the end of the game for those. Because if a player isn't aware of that and you are, you'll smoke them with all those cards. Yeah. Yeah. They think most of your points come from building those uh Huts. Huts, but it's not. Like, you got to focus on the cards. And as long as you go into there telling them, hey, make sure you focus on these cards. They're going to be end game scoring. If you do it just to block me from getting all the points, do it for that reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun game. I went back and forth as to which to put on my list Stone Age or Lords of Waterdeep. Mm -hmm. I kept going back and forth on this list of which one, because they both kind of fulfilled that worker placement category for me. Mm hmm. I chose this one because I think Lords of Waterdeep is slightly more for a more slightly niche uh, group of people. Yeah. If you don't like generic fantasy or if you don't like fantasy, Lords of Waterdeep probably won't go over as well as something like Stone Age, which is way easier to have with that type of artwork. Plus, there's that mating hut that you have to go to to reproduce your people. Yeah, to make babies. And yeah. there's just a lot of jokes there. Yeah, the love hut. Yeah, yeah the love yeah. hut, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a fun. Everybody loves that. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're like, I'm going to the love hut. And they're like, what? You're like, yeah, I'm making a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to go there and get lots of people right away. That's definitely my strategy. And then I spend the rest of the game trying to feed them. <laughs> yeah, you send out half of them just to go like, yeah, <laughs> get food. you get food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so offspring. yeah, my number three, Stone Age. My number three is Cascadia. I love this game. I, it's gone over really well every time I've taught it. 
Um, it's just really fun. It's got quite a bit of strategy in the way you play the car, the tiles and the animals, but it's just so simple to play that it doesn't feel restrictive. It's really easy to teach. You know, you put your tile anywhere you want on the board. You can put your animal anywhere there's an animal picture on it. You don't have to follow the rules of the of the the scoring animals. Like you can just play them wherever you want and see what happens. But you know, the more you play it, the the better you get at it. I, I love Cascadia. It's certainly a welcoming style game that people I can see people really enjoying. For whatever reason, it didn't necessarily click really well for me. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll play it a couple more times. You know, maybe I'm missing something. You know, maybe it's like Meadow. You don't have to love it. No, it's not like Meadow. Meadow's <laughs> not good. But Cascadia is. Maybe what we should do is we should play that in Calico. And then maybe I'll, okay. maybe, maybe I'll like the cat one better. Maybe. I love Cascadia. That's my number three. My number two is a game called Alhambra by Queen Games. This game, you're building a Alhambra in front of you. And... I would say it's probably right up there for me with Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride has always gone over well, and generally speaking, up until recently, it's probably been the next game I've shown people because of how simplistic the turns are. On your turn, you're doing one of three things. You're either collecting some money, you're either buying some tiles, or you're rearranging your Alhambra. There's some tile placement, there's a little bit of restriction, but the restriction is based on like walls. And all you need to do is be able to get to any spot in your Alhambra. With the walls, you're going to score your longest wall. There is this concept of building majority where there's different building colors. So purple tends to score the highest, but they're the hardest to get. Whereas something like, I think it's red or maybe brown is the easiest to get and they don't score as much, but you can get more of those tiles. So it's really interesting seeing what the other players are building. There are moments in the game where when you choose the buy tile action, if you spend the exact amount of money to buy it, because the money cards that you're getting are going to have values. It's going to be one, seven, two, whatever. So you'll have a variety of colors in your hand. If you can pay the exact amount for a tile, then you can buy another tile. And if you do that again, you can buy another tile. So there's four tiles always available to buy. And there's nothing cooler than seeing a new person sweep the entire board of tiles, (laughs) you know, and they just have that look of accomplishment that they just did all that. I, yeah, I really like this game. There's 8 million expansions for it. I just have the base game. It, it goes over well with new players. Like I said, it's probably it, up until recently, it's been the second game I've taught people. My number two, Alhambra. All right. My number two is definitely my heaviest game on this list. It's Orleans. And Orleans is a, a bag builder. You, you've got tiles in this bag. You pull them out. You know, wh- wherever kind of tiles you draw, you send them out on your little tableau, your little personal board. And then you get to collect more tiles from it. It's definitely heavier. It's I don't think this is a welcoming game at all. I've taught Orleans. new people. I've taught people who have never played board games this game. Back when I used to just teach them my favorite games and not welcoming games, and it's gone over really well. It's a really, it's definitely heavy, more complicated game, but it's really intuitive. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but. The only thing I think is overwhelming is your building selection. You've got this whole pile of tiles you can build from. Yeah. And the first time I played, I was just overwhelmed with what to choose. So if I'm playing with a new player, instead of giving everybody the option to build building they want, we lay out three buildings. You get to pick one of those three buildings. And that helps the new players like not feel overwhelmed with all the choices, not knowing what these tiles are going to do. But yeah. I think it's gone over really well for me. Yeah, I mean, it's your experience of that, but... Man, Orleone as a welcoming game? I don't know. Number 
Number, well, I put these in order of my favorite yeah, games. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite games. If I've got somebody who doesn't play a lot of board games but are willing to learn something heavy and complicated, I'll teach it to them. And I've had really good luck. And they've liked it. I don't know. I don't think I would ever do that. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like. You should uh, have more faith in your friends. I, well, if I had any, then yes, <laughs> yeah, then yes, I would. But yeah, my list is all pure speculation. What I would do if I had friends to come over. <laughs> all right. That's my number two, Orleans. All right. My number one welcoming game. Natasha's already mentioned it. Azul. Up until recently, Alhambra, it was Ticket to Ride in Alhambra. Azul is just one of those games that I think as long as you can understand the scoring with how it works and what I've found is usually after the very first round, everyone's like, all right, can we go over scoring? Mm-hmm. Sure. And then we'll we'll each individually score. Yeah. And then it clicks. And from there on out, it just flows really well. Yeah. The the just even the base level Azul, just how well it works. It is, again, quick turns. People understand it. You're building a mosaic floor. Is it a floor or is it a wall? First one's a floor, the second one's a window, and the third one is circle patterns. I'm not sure what that one is. And what's the fourth one? A garden. I don't know yet. It hasn't come out. Either way, the first, the, I'm specifically talking about the first one. So far, I think the first one might be my favorite, just based on how simplistic it is. There are moments where you can screw people over, which I think is not actually a bad thing. You know, specifically, there's a little bit of that player interaction where you can kind of like get one over on somebody, mm-hmm. which I think is cool. Yeah, I I really like this game. I think it works well with new people. So yeah, my number one, Azul. All right. My number one is a cooperative game. What? Yeah. It's The Crew. Oh, yeah. I love trick-taking games. And almost everybody in my life, we're from Michigan, we play a lot of Euchre. Everybody knows trick-taking games. So if somebody's uh, willing to play a game with me, I can pull out The Crew right away, already understand trick-taking. But this one's got a twist on it. It's cooperative. So it's totally different than what they're used to. But I love the crew. I have so much fun with it. It's quick. You can you can play one game, which you never do. You always play like no. 10, 20 yeah. games of it yeah. in one sitting. It's so fun. And um, trick-taking games for me go over really well. And the crew is my favorite. And it's cooperative. So there you go. The crew. Yeah, that game's good. I think there's just enough of a twist that I don't necessarily teach it to new people. You know, but mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's cool seeing people... Like realize like, wait, hold on. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Let me take that card back. That's not what I want to play. Cause you're supposed to wait, hold on. You're supposed to take that card. <laughs> Too uh, late. You have yeah, to right. Yeah. You already just, know what you have now. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a twist on trick taking. Yeah, and it's a really good twist on trick taking games. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our top ten welcoming games. If you haven't played all of them, you absolutely must. No, just yeah, just kidding. go out there and buy them all and play them. <laughs> I own all of these games. They're all in my collection. They're all my favorite games to play. I'd be happy to play them with anybody at any time. Thanks for joining us this week. Join us next week where we're going to discuss artwork and board games. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and check us out on Instagram where we post pictures of the board games we've been playing. Um, Feel free to make comments and ask us any questions you have. Have a great week. See you next week.